This is The Culture Code with Kevin Cruz, founder and CEO of LeadX, the platform that helps you scale and sustain a high-performance culture. Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Cruz. Welcome back to The Culture Code. Our guest today is the Vice President and Chief People Officer at the Aerospace Corporation, Heather Lechak. Heather, welcome. And where are you joining from today? Thank you, Kevin. It's great to be here and to join you. Be here with you virtually, I, I guess. We are headquartered in El Segundo, California. Uh, so we are you know, basically in Los Angeles area. Yeah, I was actually, um, I'm out in the Philadelphia area now, which I think a lot of people know, but I was born in Redondo Beach and grew up in Orange County. So still have lots of family. I've got a sister out there, tons of cousins who I haven't seen in years, but I know that area very well. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, we live, I live in uh, Redondo with my family, Redondo Beach. So uh, when you get out here, we'll have to actually meet in person. I would love to do that. I was just telling someone the other day that So I was born in Redondo Beach in 1967. I was there in the early 70s. And back then, Redondo Beach was not a nice town. There was a shooting outside my grade school. There were gang fights. It was dangerous. Bicycles were stolen, the horror. And then years later, we moved to the East Coast. And all my relatives were saying, you guys should have kept that house because Redondo Beach is like a nice beach town now. (laughs) Who knew? I was just like very, very late to the party. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is. It is a nice place to live, but we do have that sunshine tax. Yeah, that's that's right. That's right. You're paying for the sunshine. So, Heather, let's start at the beginning. So Mm -hmm. you work for the Aerospace Corporation. What does your company do? So we are a national nonprofit. We operate the only federally funded research development center, what we refer to as an FFRDC. We work across the entire space domain. In simpler terms, we provide objective technical expertise and analysis to solve some of the hardest problems facing our nation's space programs. We work across national security, civil, commercial, academic, even international. We don't compete with industry. We don't manufacture products. But this also means as a not-for-profit, we eliminate any conflict. So we can serve on source selection and we can dive into really any technical problem because we aren't motivated by profit. We are motivated to provide the technical solutions that our government and our government customers and partners need. Now, I think for many people, when they think about space exploration, rocket ships, they think of either NASA or SpaceX increasingly, right? And they might not automatically think of the Aerospace Corporation. Can you give sort of maybe for me a simple but realistic example of how you might work with other organizations in their missions? Sure. So you named actually two companies that that we work with, you know, very closely. We definitely have a large portion of our business that supports NASA. And we also are partnered, you know, with SpaceX as it relates to helping them achieve their objectives and providing technical solutions. We are those people that when companies are running into those really tough technical problems, we are there to kind of help solve those problems for and with them. And we are the trusted advisors of the government and of industry. So those are some of the ways in which we provide, you know, kind of that technical expertise across the entire space domain, whether it's space exploration or space traffic management or how we support our customers in the Department of Defense etc. 
about how many employees work there? We're about 4,600 employees. Um, While I've been here, we have had three uh, historical highest number of hires in the history of the company, and we have beat that record three times. Wow. So we've had considerable um, growth to our organization, particularly in the last, you know, I would say five years. And I've been here seven, having joined at the same time as our CEO, uh, Steve Isakowitz. Wow. Now we're going to do a deep dive into uh, culture, some of your secrets for fostering great culture. But I want to set the context because among your your peers, you know, chief people officers, CHROs, there's still a big debate around back to office, remote or hybrid. (laughs) Now, I'm guessing by the nature of your work that it's less of a debate and that people are working more in the office. Am I right on that or am I wrong? You are right. And it's mixed, right? It depends on, always depends on what people's roles are and where they can best do, you know, perform their roles. We do obviously have a large portion of our, the business that we do and the work that we do that is classified. And of course that can only happen um, in safe, secure places where people are required to come on site. So if you think back to when COVID hit, you know, like every company, you're focused first and foremost on the safety of your, of your workforce. And for us, there was clearly those groups of people that could quarantine, be at home, continue, you know, working safely there. But it was overnight because of the mission that we serve, the important work that we do, we had to very quickly figure out what are we going to do to ensure the the health and safety of our people that did not get to quarantine and had to come in every single day to be able to fulfill the important mission that we serve um, with respect to space national security. So... We are having that same debate and you're going to hear because I'll probably end up talking about it. We did just conduct what we call a work experience survey. We actually just got the results back in the last few weeks. That survey was intended to say, hey, we've been kind of at this in this hybrid work model where we have people that are fully on site, remote distant, remote local, meaning they can get into our major locations when needed. And then how many people are coming in X number of days. And we want to see how it was working for people. We wanted to know what impact do you think it's having on culture, on recruitment, on retention, on collaboration, on innovation, particularly for a technology and a company like ours. You wonder how can really how can people innovate over Zoom, right? Particularly when we, as a culture, I would describe us as an extremely collegiate culture, which is you know one of the hallmarks of why people really enjoy being here. And so, how do you figure out how to ensure that that collegiality extends beyond these different work models? So. We got the results. We're diving in and seeking to understand where we can make changes as well as what we want to sustain. But there is a lot of debate about it. There is no doubt. There's no doubt about it. It does create a little bit of a those that don't have to come in because they have the flexibility to not have to come into the office versus those that are like, I have to come in all five days a week. And so where's my flexibility? And so it's been tough to kind of say, how do we cater to the needs of this very diverse kind of work model. And really the guiding light for us when we were making decisions about people's work models is that it has to be mission responsive. That is the first and foremost guiding principle for us, which is all decisions will be made so that we can be most responsive to our mission. It also extends to people that are in our service organizations like HR and you know finance and whatnot. Our mission is to, and, you know, and for us, it's enabling the people that are right in the organizations that are, serving our mission and serving our our government customers, civil customers, commercial customers, international. So that has worked well because it's like you always need that those guideposts and guide rails to 
help you make those decisions consistently, equitably, but with the mission uh, for us in mind. And that's another kind of major cultural hallmark for us, which I would say is why people come here, why people stay here, because they want to know that they are contributing to something bigger than themselves. And it is the mission why people come here. Yeah, I love this idea of mission uh, responsiveness as sort of the the first design principle, you know, in, in those decisions. And it's going to be great. We'll reconnect in a few months when you've had more time to analyze that data. We certainly know sure. if there was one obvious right answer, we would all be doing it already. Right. The fact right. that we're all doing different things shows that there's no one easy, mm-hmm. uh, easy answers, more about, about trade-offs. I've heard you talk about your culture being collegiate. It's obviously purpose-driven, literally mission-driven. Yeah. Are there other ways you would describe your culture to someone from the outside like myself? We are laser focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And obviously, like many organizations, really put more of a highlight on that after you know the murder of George Floyd. But I would say it's always been important for as long as I've been here and really worked to establish and stand up that office. You know, it was not something that kind of had those three, those areas of focus. And so it says a lot when you go from affirmative action focus to, no, this is really about the diversity of your workforce, the diversity of experiences that people bring, the backgrounds. It is about equity. And it is about once you start getting a more diverse workforce, which is not easy in the STEM fields, and we can talk more about that and what we're doing. But once they get to your organization, how do you make sure it's an inclusive environment, right, where people can bring their best selves to work and, um, you know, be celebrated for what they bring? I would say that that is a big area of emphasis and and focus for us. Well, let's dive in more deeply, you know, because I was definitely going to ask, you know, what are some ways that you teach culture to new joiners, foster and sustain culture with some of the more tenured folks. How are you doing that? So I would tell you that our people would, if you were to ask, why do they join? And then when we ask them when they leave, you know, tell us some good things about, you know, the organization. Our culture is definitely one that that people um, will tell you is is a strength and why they joined or, or why they, you know, why they decide to stay. But, you know, culture is about behaviors and mindsets. And so it's really about, helping people understand what are those mindsets and what are those behaviors and how are they different from your values, right? And so we really see our value, regardless of all the changes that we are going through as an industry or as a company, as a nation, change is constant. But for us, you know, the bedrock, our North Star, are our values. Those are enduring. They have not changed. And that I think is really important in terms of, um, it's the foundation for any kind of cultural initiatives that that you want to pursue. And this last you know year, we kind of identified three cultural attributes. I don't ever recommend doing more than that because you really, if you're really going to try to make a difference and shift your culture, you just got to get really laser focused on one, two, or three. And I know it's really easy to want to change a whole bunch of other things, but it's almost like what are the three most important cultural shifts that need to happen aligned always to your business strategy, grounded in your values. But then you got to start to say, well, gosh, how do we make this shift? You have to embed those mindsets and behaviors throughout your entire employee life cycle. So once we kind of define what those attributes were and talk to a bunch of people, like, how does that show up? What does that really look like? getting people to kind of connect to it visually, intellectually, in their heart and soul, so to speak, we embed it in, you know, it's in our job requisitions, right? You can go 
in our job postings, you're going to see what our leadership expectations are. You're going to see what our cultural aspirations are and, and what we expect. Our philosophy, the philosophy that I um, established when I first got here with my people and organizational development team and with our my CEO and our leadership team was that anybody in any role, regardless of level, is a leader. We don't just have leaders at the very top. Anybody in any role has the opportunity to demonstrate leadership. And I would argue, you know, on any given day, my executive assistant demonstrates a lot of leadership in terms of managing and anticipating and providing guidance and directing, you know, various things that are happening in a very dynamic environment. But everyone has that. So that's kind of the mindset we have. So we start with our talent acquisition process. We also have our leadership competency model and cultural attributes. They're embedded in the leadership competency model, but you then think about, well, okay, now we're going to use it to inform development. So all of our development programs, strong focus on our leadership competency model, cultural attributes. We use it in our performance process because, again, what you get done is obviously important, right? It's what you get evaluated on, how you contribute, right? What impact your outcomes have, but how you do that is really important and how you conduct yourself with your peers, the people that you work for, you work with, and obviously with our, you know, with our customers and our partners and our third-party partners, et cetera. We also use it in our, our succession planning process. So it informs how we identify leaders early on and throughout. And uh, of course, it's tied to our rewards and recognition. And certainly we measure for it uh, with a, a culture. Sur- we did our first culture survey, different from an engagement survey. Last year, we had our annual culture survey. We'll, we will run those every two years because culture doesn't change overnight. And so you, you need to get that baseline. And then how are we doing? And one of the things we learned was we don't have the most change resilient culture in terms of how we self-assessed ourselves. So literally this was how good are we at change? And it was not so great. And so now you've got something to work with, which is, well, then how do we get great at that? How do we equip everybody to be a leader? Culture and managing your culture, inspiring your culture, leading cultural efforts and leading change should not just be for HR. In fact, you actually want to transition that ownership and responsibility to your leaders and to your employees. Um, But we're the ones that are kind of like behind the scenes, I think, hoping to equip people with skills and resources and and support. But I don't ever want it to be, oh, let's look to HR to lead change. But we still end up doing a lot of it, Kevin, don't get me wrong. But it really is about getting our leaders to to become really great at leading change. I want to jump in and make sure you covered so much good stuff. Okay. Who are listening to the podcast aren't able to see. I broke out my red pin and my blue pin for these notes. This is a double. So I want to make sure people picked up on a few things. So much good stuff there. First of all, like I so believe in, you talked about only three things and internally, my own team members, and even with my kids when they were younger, I would talk about the rule of three, the power of three. Yes, yes. Even my sales proposals, I only put three benefits, three reasons to buy in it. I'm like, that's all you need. Anything more just dilutes the first three. So there's there's a magic in having three or even fewer uh, things. The second thing was that I unfortunately, like I knew it intellectually, but I didn't really, really feel it until later in my career is this idea of, sure, there's results. Everybody needs to get results at work, but how you got the results is pretty darn important as well. And maybe short-term, you can have high performers, that sales rep, that's the number one rep on the leaderboard, but 
is stealing everybody else's leads or resources or other things like right. they're not going to last for long. And yeah. there's a lot of damage, you know, a, along the way. And then you stumbled onto a, a hot button issue of mine you don't even realize, which is you talked about around here, everyone's a leader. And that's how I concluded my book, Great Leaders Have No Rules. When I talk to uh, John Maxwell and say, you know, hey, what is leadership in a word? He says, it's influence. I had lunch with Ken Blanchard a couple of years ago. I'm like, oh, what's leadership yeah. in a word? He says, it's influence. And if you think about if leadership is influence, I say, well, then we're all leaders, whether we want to be or not, because Absolutely. how I show up at home, in my community, at work, That's right. my emotions are contagious. Speaking up could persuade people. Being silent is sort of silent agreement, which can persuade. So you're leading people, you're influencing people, whether you want to be or not. So be mindful and intentional. It's like, okay, which way am I going to lead people? How am I going that's to right. lead people? So that's so powerful. I haven't really heard that from many of these other interviews. But having said that, let me pivot to the actual people managers in your organization. We know that especially the frontline leaders, you know, they're the, mm -hmm. the lens of the 80% of the workforce. Gallup talks about the variance in engagement. 70% of it is tied yeah. to who your boss is. Absolutely. So I'm just guessing, I don't know your organization, but you probably have about 600 or 700 people managers in that ballpark. Mm -hmm. That's a yeah. lot of managers. How yeah. are you developing them and supporting them since they are your culture carriers? Absolutely. So I'll start by asking a question, which is, how many managers do you know would tell you that when they that they felt confident and ready to be a manager when they became one? Mm, very few. We've all worked at places where high performers, okay, let's make them managers, right? Not all high performing individual contributors, one, either want to be a manager or maybe would be a good one. So we seek to develop our managers before they become them. And that is through what we call our aspirational manager program, which is for individual contributors, any level, you've interest in becoming a manager someday, leading a team, whether it's a, a team that you just are going to have influence over, teams that might not directly report to you, or they will report to you, or it's cross-functional, whatever, you are going to lead people. And so we offer it through what we call our aerospace university. It is one of the courses that fills up faster than any other course we offer. We put people in real situations. So it's actually a lot of fun. So it's, you know, managers, they get to practice, right? They get to practice real things that happen to a manager. You've got to give performance feedback to an employee who might be struggling. How do you handle that? How do you do it with grace and dignity so that the person actually feels like, okay, I'm going to walk out of here and I feel supported and I know what I got to do and my manager's got my back. You have to tell a high potential person who applied for a job, they weren't selected. There are all these different scenarios you face or you have, to, you have to terminate someone. Go practice that. You've got to hire somebody. Go through that process. And so they develop their skills, their manager muscles. I measure success and we measure success in two ways for this program. One is, is that when they become managers, we go back and say, how much did that course help you? Did you feel prepared? We do um, equip all of our managers with the book, The First 90 Days. I know you're familiar with that, Kevin. But it really is timeless in that it does set up people to kind of have some guidelines for how they can approach, right, their first 90 days. And, and so in asking them about their preparation and feeling good and confident, 
I mean, look, even on any given day, I've been in this job seven years and there's still days I don't feel totally confident. And so what do you do in those days when you don't feel that way? And so we also try to create, you know, some cohesiveness with these programs. If you go through the program together and you become managers, celebrate with each other, but also be able to reach out. And then those that have gone through it, you know, how do you mentor those that are now, you know, going through the new program? The other success criteria, I will tell you, and this may sound funny, but are the people that say after they've gone through the course, I don't want to be a manager. That is not a bad thing to have happen. That's actually good for that person to kind of say either one, oh my gosh, I did not realize that managers have to do this stuff, right? I get to write performance, review, you know, all these things. Or now I realize I'm not ready. So I actually think that happens actually. We get one to two people during these courses that will tell us that. I think that is goodness because you've just learned something and now maybe you're not going to go pursue it and then realize um, as soon as you're in it, I'm now developing my exit strategy. I think that's great that people have the opportunity to discover that. Roughly how many people are you, it sounds like a pretty elite program. How many people are you putting through a year? I don't have the exact stats. It is for anyone that's an individual contributor. So you want to take, you're an individual contributor. You're looking for not, not only what it means to be a manager, you know, those core skills that we all know, right. And can read about in books, but what does it mean to be a manager here? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that. And I'm so glad to hear that because (laughs) I have friendly fights with a lot of my, my friends in, in your roles, because they'll say, uh, and I'm just going to make up the numbers, you know, let's say uh, they have a hundred frontline or a thousand frontline managers, which means they know every year they need to replace a hundred to 200 of them in a big company mm-hmm. through attrition or promotions or whatever sure. reason. Then they'll do an aspiring manager program. They make it nomination-based, highly competitive. They'll get a hundred people sign up for it. They select 10, meaning they just disengaged 90 of their high performers, they spend a fortune on these 10 people to get them ready. And then they're trying to recruit and backfill. And I'm like, no, no, Uh, no, 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 no. Like, yeah, Yeah, that sounds like a lot of, a lot of uh, work and and maybe some unnecessary process, but I mean, I get it. I I get, especially in big companies, right. You've got to maybe have some way to manage it, but no, we just, we, it is first come first serve for anyone that wants to go through it. The other thing is that because of our human capital management system, people's curriculums are tied to their profiles. So when people go through the, the process of interviewing internally for a, another job, whether it's yeah. lateral or advancement, the hiring managers can see like, oh, they took a course that is preparing them to really hit the ground running and to be the best that they can be, you know, out of the gate. And I think that's, I always tell them, you know, we tell them, tell the people when you're, tell the internal, you know, hiring managers, hey, I went through this program. That's Here's right. what I learned. Here's how I'm going to go in and spend my first 90 days or my first, you know, year and what I hope to accomplish. And we do self-assessments too. You know, you want to look at, you know, kind of what are my strengths and styles and those kinds of things. I don't know the numbers offhand, but I really love that we have that course. But then once you become a manager, we, of course, like many organizations have training that just kind of continues across a variety of areas that people can take through our aerospace university. We use LinkedIn learning. We curate paths and, you know, here, go have at it on your own time, when you want it, but it's there. We also have aligned our training. We've curated training related to our competencies as well as to our cultural attributes. So I think that's important. And that's the role of AU. Otherwise you're like, hey, go look at LinkedIn Learning where there's like a million courses. No, these are the ones that actually we've taken, our experts have taken and think these are really you know good ones to take. And then it shows up on their transcript when they go to take it. So so yeah, I think we, we do do a lot. We can always do more. 
you know, you got to tighten up your costs. What ha- what gets cut first, Kevin? Training. You don't have to tell me. I've been in that business for thirty right? years. I but know what gets cut first. I would <laughs> say we, with our CEO, he is so focused on developing our future leaders that, and our board has paid great attention to it. That that has not always been the first place we've gone to because yeah. of how important it is to ready our, our our leaders and have deep and diverse you know succession plans, not just for C-suite roles or leadership roles, but critical roles, which could happen at any level because of the criticality of the role and the kind of knowledge that's needed or critical skills that are needed. So anyway. No, it sounds like a lot of robust programs and I'm glad that you're starting that with the aspiring leaders, you know, that cast a wide net. It goes back to supporting that idea that everyone's a, is a leader. Right. So, you know, you obviously very successful companies by definition have successful cultures. You're not going to have a dysfunctional culture in a successful company, but how do you specifically get data or feedback about your culture. You mentioned, you know, I'm sure you're doing some sort of employee engagement Mm -hmm. and or pulse surveys. Mm -hmm. And then you also referenced this culture survey. I don't know if you wanted to share any more about that either. How else are you getting data? I will. uh, Happy to share that. And I would go back and say, we are not at all a perfect culture. We do have every, I think every organization, because we're made up of people, you know, there's going to be dysfunction, right? And so I don't want to kind of come across like, oh, we have this amazingly perfect culture here because we don't, and it's more that it has to evolve, right? And it has to be aligned to that business strategy and anticipate what kind of company do you need to be, right? To ensure your relevance for, you know, the next 60 years, because we're a 60 plus year company. In terms of our data, we're predominantly our industry as well as our company dominated by STEM professionals. So data is everything. Data is everything. So we just conducted our seventh, what we call pulse engagement survey. So we've, we've done that. We use the uh, Glint, you know, platform. We use that also for our onboarding and our exits and our culture and our engagement surveys. So now you can start to see how is all that data connected to one another at different points in, in the employee life cycle. Um, and I think I did tell you about the, the culture you know, engagement really is about the person, right? Like how engaged do you feel, you know, in terms of working at the aerospace corporation, the culture survey was more through the lens of how you experience working here culturally, as well as how how you view it and how you describe it and what you think the strengths are and what you think some of the pain points are, Mm -hmm. you know, so you might learn in a culture survey, it's really hard to get things done around here we're overly bureaucratic or we're right, or we have too much hierarchy. And so that leads to, okay, well, what can we do about that? Because by the way, one of our cultural attributes is operate with speed and agility. Well, if you get feedback from your cultural survey that says it's hard to get stuff done, we're very hierarchical, we seem to be bureaucratic, that is not going to bode well for this operate with speed and agility. And so, but now you know how to start to go tackle, tackle some of those things because People are actually commenting. One of the things that I love, and this is not at all a Glint promotion, but one of the things they do is they take all the comments that they get and they they generate prescriptive comments. Those are my favorite. Prescriptive comments are the people that are not complaining. They are the people that are actually giving you ideas mm-hmm. for how to improve. And right, it's not just, I don't like this about the company. It's, I don't like this and here's what you might want to think about, or here's what you might want to do, right? You can't do everything that people ask. And a lot of times it's like stuff that costs, you know, lots of money and you wish you could. But I do think that it is important to 
have your workforce see these surveys as a way to, to generate ideas and solutions and not just use the surveys as like a, a platform for complaints. I mean, you're always going to get those, but to make it more about making it more solution focused. So, and then, yeah, we survey a lot. In fact, I would say, Kevin, maybe too much because when you do it as often as we've done it, you then have very little time in between to actually take some things and really show your workforce you've done something with Mm. what you've learned. The good news is that over we have over 75% response rate to all of our surveys. It's high. Yeah. It's really high. And uh, one, we have a very compliant workforce. So I think when they're told to, to go do something, they do it. And so it's good because we get really rich, reliable, valid feedback and analysis. But when you survey that much and that many items, you, it becomes hard to say, well, what are we really now going to focus on? And now we're at a point where we're like, you know what? These are the three or four things that have come up for, for the last seven surveys. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. unless we start to tackle those things, we're going to lose our credibility and people are going to say, why should I fill this out anymore? So I think it's really important to strike that balance between your surveying and getting information that's good. I also would say that it is not a substitute for having real conversations with people. It is so important to get that feedback. And we generate communication guidance to our people, like to our managers, literally like, here's how you can go about talking about your results at your level with your people. It's not about the data. It's about what you do with it. It's how you talk. It's how you ignite information. Because you never know what's underneath it until you talk to people. And I was just going to make a distinction there, Heather, that so I'm a fan of, of pulse surveys, but not necessarily on continuing to ask about the big corporate level things that can take time. And, yeah. you know, sometimes you can't change them shortly. What I like pulse surveys for is actually for manager effectiveness surveys. So when, mm-hmm. when people are evaluating their manager, because we can change behaviors in as little as 12 weeks. Now, usually I always tell managers, pick one, you're you're gonna, you're gonna get right and stacked your scores. Okay, I need to work on career and safety and meeting efficiency, whatever those drivers are. Mm -hmm. And I always say pick one. And then I'd like to see in 12 weeks, 24 weeks, the longest, Mm -hmm. am I improving in that area? So that's what we tell, yeah, Kevin, we tell our managers in their action planning, you and your team pick one thing. But have it come from your team so that everyone feels some ownership and accountability to contribute to a team, you know, objective. I've definitely been in organizations where they've used engagement scores as a proxy for evaluating manager performance. Mm. What you also have to be a little bit careful about is how that can turn into some not so great behaviors that occur. And or you get a manager that goes into an organization that needs to change the way that organization is operating. They might not get good scores. And that's a sign that maybe they've gone in, they're reestablishing expectations, you know, they're creating more accountability and people don't like it. And so I think it's about just seeing, hey, it's not because they got a bad score, it's because they might be going in there and, you know, maybe shaking things up because there was a need to do so. But that always comes with the looking at it from the lens of where people are sitting and what's going on in the environment. And that's right. Yeah. So hey, Heather, we we've talked about a, a lot of different programs and aspects of culture. But before I move into more of the rapid fire questions, I mean, is there any other program you're especially proud of or that you wanted to put a spotlight on? Yes, I would. And it is our Space Workforce 2030 initiative, which we can send you some information about. We are in our our second year. It was uh, started by our CEO who wanted to create, you know, kind of an impetus for the industry, the space industry to come together 
to focus on diversity. And so uh, we have 30 companies, their CEOs all signed a pledge that by 2030, we would collectively in the aggregate increase our diversity, so ethnic diversity and female representation in our technical workforce and in our leadership teams by 50%. Aerospace is in the unique position because of our not-for-profit status, that we are trusted advisors, that people trust us with their data. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine, would a North have been a Boeing want to exchange that kind of information? But if they come to a place where we are in a position where we are collecting all the data from all 30 companies, reporting it in the aggregate, people trust us in terms of it's keeping it safe, keeping it secure, keeping it confidential and anonymous, and then reporting out it in the aggregate. We were blown away that after our first year, we, we collected the baseline, you know, baselines from all the organizations. In one year, we, we made progress as a collection of 30 companies coming together. We are all sharing the same talent pool when it comes to our interns. Because if you figure you get your interns and then you convert them and they're all diverse or people of color or female, we're already starting to create change and and momentum. And so uh, we have a number of partnerships with government organizations, with the White House, et cetera. It's something that we at Aerospace are just really proud of in terms of being kind of the, the people that got this up and running and are still kind of managing it and leading it on behalf of these 30 space companies that have joined us. And we report out uh, transparent with our results every year at the uh, Space Foundation that takes place in Colorado Springs. And we also um, have generated an annual report. Wow. Heather, that's impressive because, well, important work, important topic. And I often will hear leaders, especially in, in STEM, say, well, there's only so much you can do in the short term because of the feeder system. You know, we need better representation in the STEM programs. That's right, that's right. Right, and that we do need that, right? That's true, like we need to start younger so that we have Mm -hmm. this graduation. But you've just shown that there's still plenty that could be done in one year, five year, 10 year chunks. Absolutely, and I would say, I mean, we have lines of effort, right? So we do have a STEM, an area focused on STEM. And we committed as a group of 30 companies to touch 5 million students, and we achieved that. So if you think about it, all these companies are doing something and they're all doing something good, but how can we leverage, right, our collective efforts in what we're doing and join forces so that we're all not doing our own little thing. We're all doing something, right, to kind of make progress, accelerate progress, steal shamelessly from each other in terms of our best practices. Some companies are way more mature in their DEI efforts. Others aren't. So how do we go lift them up? and help them, you know, put things in place, particularly in companies where, you know, a small company, startup space companies, you know, they might not have a diversity and equity inclusion leader. They might just have their CPO that's doing yeah. all of it. You know, so how do you provide lift to those those companies? So it's been really exciting and uh, something that, you know, we're particularly proud of. And I'd love to send you information on it to just kind of read more about it because you know, now I'm getting contacts from my colleagues, HR colleagues in the entertainment industry, for example, yeah. like, how did you do this? How can we do this? Because we struggle. We're not dealing with STEM, but we're trying to figure out how we diversify our workforces. So yeah, with STEM, I mean, you do have to start, uh, you get, you got to start young. And I think we're, we're working in that line of effort. We're working with our colleges, universities, HBCU partnerships, all, you know, just trying to share and establish all those partnerships. So we do that. And then it's once people are in your organizations, 
what are you doing to ensure you retain them? You sure. have to have that environment for them. Yeah, lots of work to do it all at all. Uh, yeah, but it's such good work. It's yeah. fulfilling and important. Yeah. So uh, this is a short format podcast. I feel like we could chat forever about these topics, yeah. but l- let me shift to some kind of faster, a little bit more fun questions, starting with, imagine you could wave a magic wand and send all 4,500-ish employees a favorite book, podcast, maybe even a Netflix special. I don't know, but they <laughs> consume it. They would really take it to heart. Okay. What would you, what would you say? Well, you're going to love, you're going to love, I actually have three. You're oh, going to love wow. the first one. You're well, a reader. Gonna first, you're going to love the first one, which is the culture code. Oh, there it is. There it is. Okay. Culture code's amazing. Secrets of Highly yep. Successful Groups. So I wrote of that down by Daniel Coelho, right? 2018. The other book that I picked up, and it's because I have such a highly technical, highly educated workforce, right? With the majority of our workforce with advanced advanced degrees is the science of organizational change because they get science. And it's how leaders set strategy, change behavior, and create an agile culture. And that was a 2019 you know, publication by Paul Gibbons. The other book that actually I have given out quite a bit is the Bezos Blueprint, which you know just has those tools in there for that has different ways of thinking about how you communicate and how you influence and mm-hmm. whether it's written, verbal, et cetera. So um, we live and die by PowerPoint here. And I oversaw a leadership development program here recently. And I said, okay, you got your action learning project, which was a real business issue we wanted them to go solve for. I said, but when you um, generate your list, you know, your, your solutions coming out of your sandbox, you can't use PowerPoint. And I will tell you, they all said that that was the hardest part of the project. Yeah, Find a different way to convey what you want to say. It's, it is real, Kevin. That pain is real. So anyway, but the Bezos book got me thinking about communicating differently. And I love that one. Anyway. Three great reads right okay. there. So okay. let me ask you this question. So you've been in uh, VP CPO role for a while now. You know, what is something that you know today that you wish you knew, like maybe on day one, if you could send a, a Teams <laughs> message or Slack message to a younger version of Heather, what oh, would gosh, you tell her? Yes. So two things. One is, you know, having gone through the process of learning about the Aerospace Corporation, talking with the executives here, and then ultimately getting invited to join them. What was conveyed to me was how much change they were. It gets to this point. When people tell you they want change, you know, and I heard it all day, we want change in HR. We want a true HR business partner, progressive organization, change all across the board. You name it, blank sheet of paper, you can probably come in and you'll find a need to probably change nearly, you know, every process and every program and, you know, what we're doing and how we're spending money there and how we're serving our workforce. But once you get here and you start changing things, they suddenly don't want to change or I don't want to change that way. So I think that was a big, I got in and I was like, I hit the ground running. These people want change. Everyone I've talked to, they all want change. And then when I started like really kind of, and I accelerate, you know, there was a lot of impetus to get changes done quickly. It was the resistance factor and the no, not, we didn't really mean that kind of, or we didn't mean it to change that way. I wanted to change this way when they all want their own change and unique to them. That's what I wish I would have known and really figured out how do I be effective when I'm faced with that. And I've learned a lot. And I think that's why mentors having my own, 
I've always had an HR mentor and I've always had a business mentor, you know, somebody that I've worked with who have certain, you know, where I've worked with them and they've been my boss as a business leader. And because they come with such, such different perspectives. <laughs> I've yeah. got to poke on that just a little bit because okay. I feel like, first of all, it's a hilarious story. It's sort of like you show up and they're like, no, no, we want you to change everybody else's department. I'm fine. Right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but, but I think a lot of people probably have been or will be in that role. And so I know we can't do a whole nother episode. On, well, we could do an episode on this topic, but like you in brief, was could. it more like, okay, wait a minute, don't push. So was your, was the right answer? Don't push for so much change so fast because they're actually not ready. And let's just do this more slowly. Or did you have some new Jedi mind trick for like, yes, this is the change <laughs> you've been wanting. Like, how did you respond to that? Yeah, I wish I had Jedi mind tricks um, <laughs> available to me. That would have come in handy, I think, Kevin. But probably there was a lot coming at them. A new CEO, very different agenda, you know, style, approach. They had not had at that time a VP of, of you know of HR. So there wasn't like I was coming in and replacing a former CPO. So there was a lot of change that happened, I think, very quickly. And it goes back to just even this culture survey that we conducted last year, which is we're not the most change resilient organization. We don't embrace change easily. And so, yeah, the resistance is real. I would say that I ended up rebuilding my organization, literally like 90% of my organization within the first year was new. And I just, I had to hire people that I knew could come in with really tough skin. Like it is, you're going to come in and people are not going to want to do what we're doing. And so I need people that are going to know how to work through that and that you're going to stick with it because we want to know, and I did, I, I mean, just have such amazing people that were just so resilient, courageous, you know, when you get down and you're like, oh my gosh, we're pushing so hard to make these changes that we know are really, really good for the company and the business and the workforce. And we can't seem to get them to see it that way. You know, you got to just kind of come and huddle up together. So I don't know if I'm answering your question. Yeah, Kevin, no, it's but... helpful. That is helpful. And, yeah. you know, speaking of change and opportunities, we're chatting, doing this interview. There's about a month left in the year. So as you think about 2024 for yourself, your team, what are the areas you're going to focus on or, you know, prioritize or, or lean into a little bit next year? So our fiscal year is aligned to the government uh, year. So we're really, we're in our fiscal year 24. Mm -hmm. We're kind of coming out to the end of uh, Q1 for ourselves. So we have some pretty significant changes facing our organization, whether it's our operating model, transitioning our, um, let's see, 1980s SAP ERP platform to a new ERP platform. You laugh, but it's true. I mean, just there's just some big changes that are on the horizon. And so much like we've talked about change, it is really about equipping our leaders and our workforce to be resilient. And that really starts with kind of how we assess the talent coming into our organization, what we expect from our managers. So we're asking questions like, hey, talk to us about when you had to operate in the gray. Are you comfortable with that? Do you thrive in those kinds of situations? I like being in kind of a space where you can explore and not know all the answers and not be certain about things. Not everybody's like that and that's okay. But I think we're trying to just give people skills, but bring in the right people and promote the right leaders that can lead people through some pretty big changes. Because our organization may look different a year from now, and there's always the people impacts, but there's how we operate as well. So 
that's a big focus for us. You talk the kind of recurring theme of yeah. change and gray areas. So as you think about, I mean, from the outside, it seems like it's an incredible time for all things space related. So what are you most excited about when it comes to the aerospace corporation? You are ending with my most favorite question that you're asking about. Which welcome. Is the, the, thank you. Thank you, Kevin, which is the, which is, it is such an exciting time in space. In fact, we often say here, it's probably one of the most exciting, if not the most exciting time in space. For Aerospace Corporation specifically, the highest levels of the government have asked us, literally asked the Aerospace Corporation to generate solutions to ensure we have a resilient national security space infrastructure. Given the global challenges that we're facing, that are facing our country and our allies, and it's never been more exciting when you think about the advancements and opportunities that you mentioned, space exploration, combined that's all that's happening in the commercial space arena. It is ultimately creating a new economy for a multi-planet society. I mean, and to think about that and to be part of that is really exciting. And aerospace is in the middle of all of that work, all of those solutions, establishing the, the vision and the path to achieve it. And working with all the people that are all the partners and companies and customers that we serve that are just really in trying to ensure a resilient space infrastructure to keep us and our allies secure and safe. So if you like space, now I will tell you, I like Star Wars, but I was not a Star Trek person, but I have worked in the space business now for a pretty long time, both at Northrop and here. And I just find it to be really, really exciting and you're surrounded by some of the most smartest people on the planet, I'll say. And it's pretty cool. It's an exciting time uh, for sure. I want to thank you for the important work that the organization's doing and you, of course, supporting them through culture. And thanks for spending some time with us today. Vice President, Chief People Officer at the Aerospace Corporation, Heather Lechak. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. So much fun talking with you. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Culture Code Podcast. Are you looking to build, refine, or revamp a training program? We team up with companies like Northwestern Mutual, Cineos Health, and Duck Creek Technologies to roll out highly engaging training series for emerging leaders, new managers, women in leadership, high potential managers, sales enablement, and more. Check it out at leadx.org. What makes these series so uniquely engaging? We help you build a full system of development that leverages our cutting-edge platform and world-class training. We blend together world-class cohort-based virtual training and group coaching, personalized nudges, micro-learning, and on-demand office-hour-style coaching. Go check it out at leadx.org.